This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be together as a church, isn't it? Um, We're going to continue our series uh, this morning about thinking through what does it mean to actually have the love of God overflow and find expression um, in our lives. I mean, we've been exploring the various contexts where that can happen, and this morning we've got a big one. We're going to talk about how our love for God can find expression, how it can overflow in the ways that we engage with culture, with our culture. And so I want to start with a question that I'm going to throw to you, and you can share it with someone around you as much as you feel comfortable to. And that is when you think about culture, our culture, the culture in which we live, how do you feel? What emotions come to you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus living in this culture? Are there things that excite you about our culture? Are there things that inspire you about our culture? Are there things that distress you about our culture? Do you feel threatened? Do you feel fear or anxiety? Do you feel very comfortable uh, in our culture? Or maybe it's a collection of those emotions. So how do you feel when you think about being a Christian in today's Australian culture? Why don't you take 30 seconds, turn to somebody and just share. What emotions do you feel? (laughs) All right, there was a mini lull in conversation, so I'm going to inject myself back into the conversation. Hopefully that's just a a really helpful orientation uh, to today because we recognise that whenever we're talking about anything uh, in in our church, and particularly uh, what we're going to talk about today, there is a real sense for us that it is personal, that, that it affects us, that it impacts us, that we feel the weight of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus uh, in this particular area. Uh, chances are there some of you would have felt some really positive things about uh, our culture. After all, for most of us, we grew up here. We were born into it. There's stuff that we actually really love about living in Australia in 2023. And chances are there's also um, some emotions that are a little more like, oh, sometimes I increasingly feel the tension of what it means to live as a Jesus follower in a culture that doesn't follow Jesus as Lord. I don't know if you've experienced this over your life where there's been particular moments that we just really tune you into this. Uh, Maybe you've had a conversation with someone or you've been in a workplace somewhere and overheard a conversation you just went, oh, wow, my values are clearly not the values of this place. There is, we're at odds here. Uh, for me, there was a real moment, um, uh, I think it was just, it was just last year, I was, I was watching um, an interview that, that happened with a, with a local, local pastor um, who's doing great things, and I'd been following their journey for a little while. They got invited uh, onto television um, because culture had taken exception to something that they'd said in a sermon five years ago. And I remember I'm watching this interview, and a well-known interviewer, a well-known show, won't, won't call them out publicly uh, here today, um, but they're sitting down opposite this pastor, and this pastor's sharing what they believe um, and, and how it comes from the Bible. And I remember this guy just going, oh, come on now, no one really believes that anymore, do they? I remember sitting there being like, wow, <laughs> nobody believes that anymore, do they? I'm like, well, actually, for hundreds of millions of people around the world, this is a sacred text that we've been basing our views and our opinions on, and we've been doing so for millennia. And yet culturally, very publicly, very openly, without any sort of embarrassment or shame or self-doubt, here was somebody proclaiming, come on now, no one really believes this and follows this today, do they? 
It's a real cultural moment. You know, there's a, a great book I read a, a couple of years ago uh, by a guy by the name of Stephen Alpine, McAlpine. He's, a, he's an Australian, uh, and he wrote a book called When Did We Become the Bad Guys? <laughs> Following Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. Uh, and he's talking about uh, this cultural move that's happened over the last century where Christians have kind of moved from this thing that was seen as a really good thing to almost a, a dangerous thing. And so let me just go through that little flow, uh, just to see if this resonates with you. But he, he started in this place, because a century ago, Christians were seen as the good guys, uh, those who had great virtues, who made positive contributions to society, uh, that it was good and proper for somebody, you know, recovering from addiction or coming out of prison to connect to a church, because that was the place where life transformation happened and people sorted themselves out and got on the straight and narrow. And then it kind of moved from that to, well, well Christians just became one of the guys, uh, one of the various options that you could have for what it meant to live a good life in Australia um, and be kind of well represented, but you had lots of choices. Uh, and then it sort of moved from there and to this point where, well, Christians were kind of seen as harmless. Uh, and this is kind of probably the, the world I grew up in, where it's like all my mates at school were like, we don't at all believe in what you believe in, but you're not doing any harm by believing in it, so go for you if you want to believe in that stuff. It's not for us, but you're pretty harmless, so, so go for it. Uh, and then Stephen McAlpine, and why he's written this book, he's like, well, it seems that culturally in the last, quite rapidly, maybe 10, 20 years, uh, the prevailing cultural opinion of Christians has shifted to where some of the views and the values that we have are seen as downright dangerous or antithetical to modern cultural ideology. This is a quote from the book. Biblical ethics are not seen merely as laughable or outdated or oppressed, but as shameful, harmful, and repressive. Our views are not merely seen as wrong, but dangerous. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life and in your world. And so his book just sets up the question, well, when did we become the bad guys? Uh, just kind of resonating with that common Christian experience, for me, for us, who have lived uh, probably more than, more than 10 or 20 years, who just are suddenly trying to to orient ourselves in our culture once again, be like, hang on a minute, when did this happen? When did we move from being this kind of harmless uh, group who believed these things that not everyone else believed to the very views that we hold being seen as dangerous to society? When did we become the bad guys? So this morning I want to look at, well, what does it mean to be a Christian in our culture? And I'm going to start where I think we should always start, at the heart of the matter, and that is, who are we really? I don't often really enjoy my own subtitles, but that's pretty good. Christian identity, self-perception, and understanding our place in culture. Doesn't that make me sound really intellectual? <laughs> it's going to be a good sermon. Who are we really? Who are we really at the core of it? Um, when Kay and I had just been married, a year or two into our marriage, we went on our first overseas trip together. Really excited to do this. We went to the Cook Islands. And Kay was like, where? she'd done a heap of international travel in her 20s, and so we kind of got married, like, where do you want to go? And I said, I've always wanted to go to a, just a beautiful Pacific island. And so we looked at where we could go, and where it was affordable, uh, and we decided, you know, the Cook Islands, that's great. It's not too far away. They've got this beautiful Christian heritage, and if you've ever looked at them online, I mean, it is just, there's not much there, <laughs> but natural beauty is everywhere, and that's what I was about. And so we went over uh, to the Cook Islands, and obviously as part of that, we did our research. What will we do over there? Which beaches will we go? Obviously, where will we stay? What activities are there to do there? Again, not very many. Um, but one of the things that constantly came up was, you should go to church. It was amazing. 
Uh, In all the travel blogs, uh, in all the tourist stuff, they would say you've got to get to a church service if you go to the Cook Islands. Um, But it was billed as this kind of cultural, cross-cultural experience, uh, almost this entertainment. They weren't saying Christians should go to church when they visit the Cook Islands. They were saying anybody should go to church when you went to the Cook Islands. So we land there and we're stand-up paddleboarding and enjoying all all the natural beauty. And in my heart, I'm like, I can't wait for Sunday. I can't wait to go and worship with my brothers and sisters uh, who have grown up and been part of the Cook Islands. And so we go to church on Sunday and it becomes very clear that this is a regular tourist thing that happens in their church. And so we rock up and there's the foreigner section over there. Uh, and here's the, well, the people who live in the Cook Islands. This is their section of the church. Now, a bunch of the singing and, and all that kind of stuff was as amazing as you'd expect. Everyone dresses up in their cultural thing, in their Sunday best, and they're, and they're singing songs in their, in their kind of native tongue, and it's amazing, and it's moving, and to see the way that they worship is beautiful. Uh, the sermon happens in two parts, a little bit of English for you guys, and then a little bit of native tongue for you guys, a little more English for you, a little bit more native tongue for you, while you're sitting there thinking, I wonder, what they're, I wonder if it's the same message that we're getting here, or if it's slightly different. I suspect it was slightly different. Um, we seem to get a shorter message than the others. Um, but we're sitting amongst a bunch of other foreigners who are enjoying it. At the end, all the foreigners get to uh, go past the pastor and shake his hand on the way out first. There's a lovely morning tea set up uh, in the courtyard, uh, and everyone from the church hangs back until the foreigners had their first go of the morning tea. Um, and we had somebody who was hosting, who I imagine was a rostered position uh, in their church that morning, facilitating that morning tea and that movement. Uh, and so we ended up fairly separate and end up, end up uh, heading into the rest of our day. Uh, and I remember one lady next to us being like, just so enthralled with what had happened. And you could just see for her this was, this was just, oh, isn't this amazing? Isn't this fascinating? This cultural experience that I get to have. But I left really frustrated because that's not who I am. I wasn't coming as the foreigner. I wasn't coming as the tourist. I didn't want to have a cross-cultural experience. I didn't want to observe what church looked like for them. I wanted to be one of the people, a brother in Christ, a fellow worshipper. I was a pastor for crying out loud. I wanted to connect and worship the true living God with them. And yet I also recognized that for them, how frustrating must that be, that every Sunday a portion of those who gather together don't claim the name of Jesus and are coming to observe and to watch as entertainment. And they must be similarly being so frustrated, being like, this is not who we are. We're not a cross-cultural experience. We're not an entertainment. We're not a show. We are the people of God, worshipping the one true living God. Who are we, really? Christian identity, self-perception, and understanding our place in culture. I think we need to understand First and foremost, the biblical instruction that we are a chosen people. For sure, we're Australians. 100%, of course we are. But who are we really? What is our truer identity? It's the fact that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. What a beautiful description of who we are as the people of God. And so Peter, as he writes this, as he celebrates who they truly are, he then launches into a bunch of instructions which many of you would have unpacked in your connect groups this week. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. 
Uh, the self-perception of Peter and the early believers that they were foreigners and exiles, strangers. That even though they lived in the culture, even though that they were, whatever it was, Roman or Greek or Jewish, that their identity was caught up in something else to the point where where they lived, it could be said that they were like a foreigner or an exile, a stranger in that land. Jesus describes this as being in but not of the world, and hopefully you've heard that, that phraseology uh, as you studied your Bibles and learned what it means to, to love and follow Jesus. So in John chapter 15, this is the night before uh, Jesus is arrested and, and betrayed, uh, again, that download to his disciples, reminding them he has chosen them out of the world. Chosen them out of the world. And as he prays for them, he prays uh, not that God would take us or them out of the world, but that we would be protected as we live in the world. And in fact, in the same way that Jesus was sent into the world, he now sends us into the world. In, but not of. The New Testament unpacks this in other ways as well, reminding us that our citizenship, where our true home is, is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's what's stamped on our passports. And so therefore, we're actually Christ's ambassadors. We're those who represent our true home in this world as we point people to Jesus. And so then the instruction in Colossians then is, well, we are to live this way, set our hearts on things above, set our minds on things above. Do you see yourself this way? Who are you really? Who are you really? I think when we know and embrace at a deep level that this is who we are, it will help us navigate culture in a way that's going to honour God and help us live out our convictions with hope and faith and peace. We are the people of God, a chosen people, a called out people, a people distinct because we belong to God and belong with God and are placed here as part of his good pleasure and purpose for the world. I find that really encouraging. So how then should we live? Anybody been watching this show? Nice. <laughs> uh, this is called uh, The Mandalorian. Uh, it's been a show on Disney. Um, it's been out for, I don't know how many, I'm always late to the game, so it's been out for a while. I have finished watching it now. Um, and it comes from the kind of the Star Wars universe. Uh, but the Mandalorians are a particular culture, a particular people group in the Star Wars universe, and it, and it kind of centres around this, this main Mandalorian um, and uh, they're, they're homeless at the moment, they're, they're planeted kind of, uh, hadn't, hadn't gone very well, and so they're scattered throughout uh, the universe. So they're interacting with other cultures and they're integrating themselves with other cultures whilst really clearly uh, holding on to their cultural identity as Mandalorians. And they have some very strange practices like never removing their helmet, uh, not allowing people to see their face, and, and a whole bunch of, of other things. But they're retaining their cultural distinctiveness as they live in and among other cultures. And there's a repeated phrase that, that happens uh, throughout this show. Uh, does anyone, whoever's watched it, can you tell me what it is? This is the way. This is the way. So they'll be interacting with each other and they'll be having a conversation. Um, and, you know, they're going to make a particular decision or they're going to have a particular action. And at the end of describing what's going to happen, they'll say, this is the way. 
And it's an expression that what we are about to do, or the reason we are going to do something, is because this is who we are, really, underneath it. We are Mandalorians, and this is how Mandalorians live and act and behave in the world. And so they kind of say this, being like, remember, we're living out of our true identity here, this is the way, and those that they're interacting with parrot back to them, this is the way. I'm in agreement. Yes, this is what it means to live out our cultural identity, and I'm with you, and I too am going to live out my cultural distinctiveness as a Mandalorian with you. Tell you what, Disney can preach. Whew. <laughs> this is the way. What a beautiful phrase and a beautiful uh, encouragement um, to us. You know, throughout the scriptures, you always want to look to the places that are going to be the most encouraging for us to be equipped for how we engage with culture. And I think one of them for us is the exile, people in exile in the Old Testament. I think there's some great similarities and great similarities with the Mandalorian uh, there as well. So in the exile, what we find is that the people of God are displaced from their physical space, the nation, and they've been carried off into other cities, uh, from other cultures with different gods and different power structures, different authorities, different cultural norms, different cultural values, and they're trying to wrestle with, well, what does it mean for us to be the people of God here amongst this culture and in these cities when we're used to having the nation of Israel uh, and the center of our nation be the temple and God's chosen king upon the throne? Now, there's obviously some differences, and I, and I don't want to gloss over those, between the exile and us. The people of God were in exile as an act of judgment for their wicked and rebellious ways. Um, and obviously, we have not been sent into exile, but we've been born here, we've been grown up in this culture, and we've been saved and set apart from within the culture. So there are some differences that I, want to, that I do want to acknowledge but there are some similarities and there's some real wisdom to be gleaned in looking at and listening to how the people of God navigated the cultural differences in exile. The prophet Jeremiah, he has a word from God to speak to the exiles who are in Babylon. Uh, I've got this on the screen. This is uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So there's the context. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that you too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. So the people of God, they find themselves amongst a culture that is at odds with their faith and their identity as the people of God. And they're wrestling with it. How do we live? At what levels should we engage with culture? Um, prophet will go on to talk about there's a lot of false prophets and false prophecies being given to this as well. Do they just retreat into their little holy huddle trying to retain their cultural distinctiveness, almost trying to ignore the rest of the culture of, of Babylon? Uh, do they try and exert themselves as a dominant force uh, in Babylon? And what God says to the people through the prophet 
uh, Jeremiah is effectively, we want you to participate in the city that you live. We want you to contribute to the culture that you are a part of. We want your heart to be for this people and for this city without compromising or assimilating or looking exactly like them. It's really instructive, I think, to us. Of course, many of us, we don't need the instruction to build houses and plant gardens. We don't need the instruction to live and to put our roots down in the place that we live. We've grown up here. We're, we're already doing that. But this idea that we seek the prosperity and the welfare of the city, and that we're praying to God, interceding over our city, over our country, over our culture, as a distinctive people, is really instructive and really important. Again, Stephen McAlpine from that book, When Did We Become the Bad Guys? He just reminds us that this is a quote, all of us, which I did bring, I think, all of us living in Australia are immersed in a highly effective discipleship program offered by our culture Monday through Saturday. I would suggest through Sunday. In everything from our phones to Netflix to advertising and news items, we are being offered a discipleship program that invites us into a completely different way of life, mediated to us through a dazzling array of images, sounds, stories and suggestions. In response, our churches must offer discipleship programs that are deeper, richer and more compelling than those offered by the culture. As God's people, we are tasked with laundering one discipleship program out of ourselves first before we can even begin to launder the gospel discipleship program in. Now, I think if you are a parent, you are acutely aware of this, that our culture is discipling the next generation. Every time they're on their phones, every time they're in their schools, I'm surprised he didn't mention the education system. Every interaction with those who don't follow Jesus, Lord, there is this sense of being discipled. And the pressure ultimately is to conform to the cultural society's norms and values and agendas. This even reminds us that we are disciples of who first and foremost? Jesus. We are followers of the way. The very first thing we were called as Christians, we are followers of the way. Followers of the ways of the Jesus, not the ways of the world. And there's a bunch of verses you can look up if you want uh, to go in deeper into that. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Ephesians 4, verse 17, you must no longer walk, that is, no longer live as the Gentiles do. We are a called out people, remember, distinctive because of our allegiance to Jesus. James 4, do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the call for the people in exile, and I think the call for us today, uh, is to absolutely retain our distinctiveness as the people of God to look different, to behave differently, to pray differently, to have different values and rhythms. Um, let's be honest, you're all in church on a Sunday. You're already out of pattern and out of rhythm with the world around you, right? To retain our distinctiveness as the people of God, to look and to be different because of our allegiance to Jesus. But we're also called not to run from culture, 
nor to set ourselves up in opposition to culture. We're not trying to stranglehold power and authority and influence from culture. We're called to participate and contribute and to bless our broader society and our broader culture as those who live here and belong here, but also as those who live for Jesus and belong with Jesus. Have I explained that tension adequately enough? And there's hundreds and thousands of ways that we'll work that out and we'll have to find the tension point and the balance between what does participation, contribution and blessing look like and where do we maybe need to draw some lines between, well, let's keep our distinctiveness and let's not compromise and let's not conform to the pattern and the ways of this world. Jeremiah 29, that's a familiar Bible reference, isn't it? Does anybody know a verse from Jeremiah 29? Oh, you can speak up. We're friends. Jeremiah 29, 11, I think I was hearing that. Yep. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. And so this is what happens for the people of God. Uh, He's placing them in exile and he's saying, participate, contribute, build homes, marry, have kids, be a blessing to the community, but never forget whose you are and where you're going. This is what the Lord says a couple of, this is a couple of verses later from that quote that I just read. When 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. I will listen to you. When you seek me, you'll find me with all of your heart. God places his people amongst this culture that have different gods, that have different values, that have different power structures, and he says, live there, participate there, contribute there, be a blessing there, but never forget whose you are and where your home truly is, because I'm going to fulfill my good and perfect plans for you. Uh, And that's exactly what he does for the people of God in the Old Testament in preserving a remnant and ultimately bringing them back and placing them back in the land, which is where we find them when we open the pages of the New Testament. And he's going to do it for you and I when Jesus returns and calls us home and makes all things right once and for all. So how then should we engage with people? Grace, wisdom and posture are gospel way of being. You know, a couple of years ago, a guy by the name of Mark McCrindle did a whole bunch of research around how Australians interact with faith. And here's just a couple of stats I'd love to draw your attention to. So the question is down the bottom. Given the right, he's asking this to non-Christians, given the right circumstances and evidence, how open would you be to changing your current religious views? So these are those who are saying, I have no current religious views. a secular atheist, or something similar. Now, 77% said, no, look, I I believe what I believe for a reason. I'm pretty content and convicted that that's the way that I want to live. But it's interesting, isn't it, that 10%, one in 10 non-Christians interviewed in Australia, so they're very interested, quite open to exploring Christian faith and religion. I was encouraged by that. And a further 13% would consider. Now, let's see if my private high school boys' education was worth the price my parents paid for it. I think that's 23%. (laughs) If I add those two numbers together. Yeah? Mum and Dad, money well spent. 23% would consider or are very open 
to at least exploring the possibility of faith in Jesus with somebody who's a follower of Jesus. I'm going to be sneaking. I'm going to round that up. That's one in four. One in four non-Christians that you meet are at least open to considering the possibility of why you believe what you believe and its potential impact on what they believe. Hmm. He asked a follow-up question. Well, what are the prompts for the generations to think about spiritual, religious, or metaphysical things? So you're an Australian non-believer. You're going about your life. What would it take for you to actually think about, to consider, to grapple with, to wrestle with spiritual things? I want simply to draw your attention to the top line. Baby boomers, you clearly watch too much news, but apart from that... Conversations with people, conversations with people, conversations with people, conversations with people, number three for boomers, conversations with people. When it comes to an Australian person who holds no faith, the number one thing collectively that would actually challenge that, that would actually mean that they're open to considering it, is a conversation with a Christian personal, relational, getting to hear and understand your experience, my experience of following Jesus as Saviour and Lord. That's quite compelling data. 1 Peter 2, once again, we are a chosen people. We are foreigners and exiles. So live such good lives among the pagans, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, may they, not, they may not agree with everything that you believe, say, or do, they may see the irrefutable evidence of your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Among Christians in Australia, the number one thing that's most likely to get them to consider faith is us. A personal experience of us. And the scriptures remind us that the thing you can do above all is live such good lives as irrefutable evidence of God's goodness that in that conversation, that in that interaction, they can see, taste, experience some of the love of God through the way that we live and interact with them. He goes on uh, the next chapter and just reminds them who is going to be Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear, do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who may speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, well, they may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And obviously there's a whole bunch of other verses in the scriptures as well that remind us and invite us to be purposeful and intentional in the way that we are living out grace and good news. A little saying that I think we're called to be and bring good news. I think often we focus really strongly on that we need to bring good news. I also think we need to be good news. Be good news peaceful people, humble people, honourable people, respectful people, 
people whose lives are characterized by so much good that it's impossible for the watching world around us to not take notice. And the expectation of Peter is that people are going to ask you. You're going to live such a hope-filled way that people are going to want to know what the secret is. What's behind that? I want to end with a story. I want to end with a story. I did a couple of years of leading on HSC study camps. I don't know if you've uh, come across these things, um, but there's an organisation that runs uh, study camps. Sounds like horrible internment camps, doesn't it? Um, but it's where, it's where parents and families would send Year 12 students for a week uh, where they would be given the opportunity slash forced, uh, to study ahead of their HSC exams. There's a schedule set up, and they, and they would study a certain amount of hours every day for five days. And, and there were leaders on that group who, who came with skills in maths and skills in English and skills in silence, and, and we would oversee and be there uh, as, as a help uh, and as a guide, uh, trying to, to seek to empower these students to study and best prepare themselves for the HSC exams as they possibly could. But it was a Christian organisation, so there was also a chance on the, day, on the days to have a little chapel service and actually share a little bit about what we believe and why, to do some apologetics. There were discussion groups that would happen throughout the course of the day. And of course, because you, know, you can't study 14 hours a day, we'd also play some games and you know, channel our you know, youth pastor as part of these weeks. And I tell you what, it was a fascinating uh, experience for me. I, I led on them probably only about 10 years after I finished my year 12. And it was really obvious to me, wow, how much culture had changed even in 10 years. And so we had this collection of predominantly non-Christian, year 12, uh, mostly high-achieving students, but not necessarily. And just to see the ways that they would interact with uh, my talks uh, and the topic, uh, you go, wow, they really are quite closed to the idea of Jesus and the idea of faith. And for them, it's a real, why on earth would anybody even consider this for themselves? Maybe I just wasn't very convincing as a speaker. <laughs> but throughout the week, obviously, the team of leaders who are all Jesus-loving people would interact with these kids, would help these kids. And towards the end of the week, there was always this lovely, powerful moment when the penny dropped for the Year 12 students, where they realised, hang on a minute, all of you guys have given up time to be here. You've taken, you're using your annual leave to be here with us. You're not getting paid to be here. In fact, you've paid to be here. And the conversations that opened up as the U12 students just said, why? Why would you do that? And then for us to share about the love of God in a practical way, <laughs> that we think the best thing for them is not a great mark in the HSC, but for them to come to know and experience what we've come to know and experience ourselves. Not a system, not a church, not a religion, but us. We're so moved by the love of God. It so overflows and outworks itself in our lives that we'll take a week off work and we will pay to be at camp babysitting a bunch of Year 12 HSC students because we desperately want more people to taste and experience this Jesus for themselves. 
what is most likely for Australians to open them up to considering the possibility of spiritual things, a conversation with a person. My friends, this is the way. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you and I want to celebrate that we know what it is to place our faith and trust in you, Jesus, to know that we have a place where we belong, where we're adopted into the family of God, where heaven is our home, where the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our lives and we don't navigate this world by our own wisdom and in our own strength, but with you and in participating with where you're leading us. God, this is who we are, a chosen people, a called out people, called out of the world but still in the world for your sake and for your glory and for the sake of those who don't yet know you. God, I pray that you would give us great wisdom as individuals and as a church in how to navigate the current cultural times. God, I pray that we would be a blessing to Australia and the broader culture of the Central Coast. God, that we would be people that make our homes here, that participate here, that contribute here, that bless here, being and bringing blessing wherever we go. But help us to remain distinctive as your people to look like how you would like us to look, to hold fast to the truths that are timeless. Help us be kingdom people first and foremost, Jesus' followers first and foremost. And God, we want to pray for our interactions with a watching, unbelieving world around us. God, may they experience us not as hypocritical or judgmental, not as those who retreat from culture to their holy huddles in their churches on Sunday mornings. But let, us ex- let them experience us, I pray, God, as those who carry grace and humility, who are devoted to good and to being and bringing good news wherever we go. And I pray for your sake, Lord, that many, many, many more might come to know and experience what we've come to know and experience. And I pray for our church's role in that, where you've placed us. Jesus, in the same way that the Father sent you to the world, you now send us, Narara Valley Baptist Church, to the central coast in Australia in 2023. May we be your hands and feet, followers of the way, And I pray that that would open up all manner of spiritual conversations as we follow you and live here. Amen. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.